Letter 20 of Letters from Hell This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Letters from Hell by Valdemar Adolf Thisted Translated by L.W.J.S. Letter 20 I had been seeking for Annie too long already, not to have all but given up the hope of ever meeting her again. She seemed utterly vanished, but hell is large, and its inhabitants are not to be numbered. Inquiry for her quite unsettled my mode of life. I was but a vagabond, traveling hither and thither, driven onward by a gnawing need. There was a fire within me, and I thirsted. Living man, no, not the parched wanderer in the desert ever knew such agony. Thirsted for Annie, though I knew she was but as a broken cistern that can hold no water, and unable, therefore, to soothe my pain. She had lost that privilege of womanhood in life even, how much more in hell. No, Annie could not quench my thirst. In vain she keeps wringing her garments, her once glorious hair, it is wet and dripping, though never a drop of water she wrings out of it, but she carries that about with her which would solve a terrible mystery. That is why I am driven to seek her, thinking and dreaming of her as I once did in life, when the red glow coursed through my veins, and I saw in her but a flower in the vast realm of nature, unfolding her beauty for my selfish delight. But how different now! It was not love that drew me, but the dread longing to read in her face concerning that awful likeness, which had flashed through my conscience on meeting her before. It was more than a presentiment then, it seemed an assurance. Still, I wanted proof to determine between doubt and certainty. She, she alone could be the witness that sealed my guilt. Her features had spoken, but by her mouth alone could I finally be convicted. Yet, even though I found her, could I hope to hear her voice? My heart misgave me, but endeavor to find her I must. At last, after many days, the desire seemed realized. I came upon her sitting by the river, motionless, and gazing into the turbid flow, as though about to seek death in its embrace. Hell, after all, at times offers what is akin to satisfaction. For a moment I forgot self and everything beside me, anxious only to approach her. As a gliding shadow I moved forward, scarcely to be distinguished from the crawling mists that haunt those banks of darkness. I was able to watch her leisurely, though in fevered anguish and with trembling soul, examining her countenance and questioning her every feature. It was all pain and suffering to me, but I forced myself to the task, and the result was utterly startling, an effort of the will only keeping me from jumping to my feet. How could I have believed Martin to be her very image? There was a likeness, certainly, but not more than might be merely casual. It was the first time that I experienced anything like relief in hell. 
Strange that it came to me by the side of that ominous river, a feeling of comfort all but superseded the pain of inquiry. My eyes devouring her greedily yielded conviction. No, hers was no likeness to Martin that need trouble me. But there was a likeness. To whom? My satisfaction was short-lived, alas. A new horror laid hold of me, clutching my every fiber. What could it be? Doubt pursued by certainty darting through me. I saw it. Yes, yes. Annie was not like Martin. She was like that girl loved by Martin, who had been the last object of my earthly desires, whom I had lifted from poverty, but who had preferred poverty with Martin to a palace with me. It must be so. The more I gazed, the more certain I seemed. This, then, was Martin's secret that should have made all straight between us. That girl, my daughter, and he, Martin, my son. I shook with horror. Again the words kept ringing in my brain that the sins of the fathers shall be visited upon the children. That girl, my child. So near had I been to commit a crime at which vice itself shrinks back appalled. My own daughter! Oh, heavens of mercy! Where indeed shall the consequences of sin find their limit? Unutterable anguish laid hold of me. There she sat, pale, gloomy, a very image of pitiless fate. A few words of hers would have sufficed to dispel the misery of suspecting doubt. But not a word she had for me. Her soul and mine were utterly apart. The time was when she followed me, though I took her to the road of hell. Now she turned from me, and had I been able to show her the way to paradise, I believe she would have spurned me with loathing. My life seems one mass of darkness, but I see innumerable lights, some heavenly, some earthly, illumining the gloom. It is more especially the countless proofs of God's fatherly goodness I call to mind. Like stars I see them shining through the night of my sinful folly. I see now how often God was near me, how often his hand was upon me to stop me in the downward course, to warn me, move me, draw me to him in unutterable mercy. How tender, how faithful, how long-suffering was he in his dealings with me, following me in pity all the days of my life, as, indeed, he follows all men. Oh, think of it, my brothers, my sisters, yea, whose eyes are not yet closed in death. He is following you, loving you daily, continually. But I spurned the touch of that hand, not caring for his love, and I am lost now, having my portion with the ungodly in the place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. I could not but be moved sometimes. The hand reaching down from heaven was too plainly to be felt. The blessings it spread about my path were too great for even me to disregard them. There were times when I felt I ought to kiss that hand of mercy, pouring out tears of repentant gratitude. My heart would be softened and stir to the depth. If sorrow for sin was weak, yet resolutions to mend my ways seemed strong, and I believed I should never again forget how good the Lord had been. 
but forget I did, losing sight of everything, love, gratitude, benefit, and resolve, I of God himself, nor was it mere forgetting, no, I cared not to remember, turning away so fully, that when trouble once more overtook me, I never even thought of him who had helped me, and pitied me before. Yes, let me confess it loudly, it is not the fault of God that I did not come forth from earth's besetting dangers, a redeemed and blessed soul. The parable of the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep, how simple it is, and how it speaks to the heart, and that love is not only for the flock as a whole, but for each individual sheep, ever leaving the ninety and nine to go after that which is gone astray. How tenderly will he seek for it, and, if so be that he find it, carry it home rejoicing. Yes, I feel it now, if I did not feel it then, that all through my sinful life there was one seeking me in sorrow and in hope. I, and finding me again and again, but I would not stay in the fold, preferring my own dark ways to his watchful guidance. I would not, and lo, I am lost. I never was visited by serious illness after that first trouble at the outset of manhood, till the days of my final agony. But I once suffered from inflammation of the eyes, which necessitated my abiding for several weeks in a darkened room. That was a time of misery. Not merely a trial to patience, but simply awful. I gained a pretty clear idea of the signal punishment inflicted by the solitary confinement systems in prisons. To a heart burdened with evil recollections there can be no greater misery than solitude. Days and nights were crawling past alike in gloom, and it seemed to me not only that darkness itself increased, but that I was engulfed by it more and more. And yet that darkness was but a feeble foretaste of the night enclosing me here. I thought it fearful then. It would be mercy now. I had plenty of so-called friends, but somehow not many cared to visit me. It was not pleasant, I suppose, to share my confinement and listen to my dismal grumblings. So I was left alone for the most part. Alone? Nay, I had company. My better self had a chance now of being heard. I had forgotten it, neglected it, banished it for years. But it had found me out, seizing upon my loneliness to confront me, darkness not being an obstacle. I disliked it exceedingly, yet what could I do but listen? It had come to upbraid me, contending with me, and left me no peace. There are two selves in every man, never at unity with one another, although theirs is a brotherhood closer than that of Castor and Pollux of old. Striving continuously, not because love is wanting, but because contention is their very nature. That duality in man is the outcome of sin. If he could be saved from it, sin with all its consequences would cease to enthrall him. And there is a release, as I found out in those darkened days. We wrestled without a hope of conciliation. 
There is not a more stiff-necked or inflexible being than what is called the better self. Not one iota would it yield, but I was to give up everything, and strip myself entirely to the death even of self. But I would not, and perhaps I could not. Yes, I could, if I would, for presently I perceived that we were not two but three, two warring, and a third one trying to mediate in earnest love. I could oppose the better self, but him I dared not contradict. I felt it too plainly that he was right, and that through him only I could be at peace with myself and begin a new life. I knew who he was, the one mediator, not only between me and that other self, but between me and the righteous God, the only begotten Son, once born in the flesh. In those days I was his prisoner. There was no escaping in the dark corner in which he faced me. The good shepherd had found the wandering sheep. His arms were about me, and he was ready to take me home. But the willingness was only on his side. I cared not. Suffering him with a negative endurance merely, and not wanting to be kept fast, there was something within me waiting but for opportunity to break away from the shepherd's hold. Nor was opportunity wanting. It is ever at hand when looked for by perversity. The evil one had no wise yielded his part in me, and required but little effort to assert it. He invented an amusement that needed no light. One of my friends was his messenger, and I received him open-armed as a very liberator, delightful pastime, that game of hazard that could be played in the dark. We played, my friend and I, no, the enemy and myself, for my companion was no other than the prince of darkness. The stakes, I knew it not then, but I know it now being nothing less than my soul's salvation. With such an expert I could of course not compete. He won. I lost. I remember a glorious evening on the Mediterranean. The day had been sultry. But towards sunset a gentle wind had risen. A cool air from the northwest, fresh and balmy, fanned the deck. The waves rose and sank in even cadence, their silvery crests sparkling far and wide. A playful troop of dolphins gambled around the vessel. The sun had just dipped his radiant front in the cooling waters. Dashes of gold, amid a deeper glow of purple and red, burned in the western horizon, beyond the Ionian Sea, enhancing an aspect of unutterable loveliness. To our left was the splendid island of Sethira, and, rising beyond it, with clear outlines and deepening shadows, the majestic hills of Mena, where Sparta was of old. To our right the beauteous Candia, with the heaven-kissing Ida, the snowy summit of which was even now blushing in a rapture of parting light. Lily sat silent and almost motionless, leaning against the bulwark her hands pressed to her bosom, gazing absently towards the coast of Morea. The wind played caressingly with a curl of her silky hair. I knew not what to admire most, the glorious panorama 
or the girlish figure that formed so lovely a center. My eyes rested on her, drinking in her beauty. Ha! What was that? Uneasily she breathed, her chest heaving, her face turned to me with an expression of anguished distress. I saw that flush and pallor strove for the mastery in her face, and that her spirit battled against some unknown foe. What is it, Lily? I cried, repressing emotion. I know not, she said with a troubled sigh. I felt a horrible weight on my soul, but be not anxious, my friend, it is gone already. And indeed, she looked herself again. I took her hand, and we sat side by side, not talking. The night descended slowly, a night of paradise. The land disappeared in folds of gray, the summit of Ida only preserving a faint flush, and the darkening dome above shone forth in myriads of sparkling lights. What are you thinking of, Lily? I asked, presently closing my hand on hers. Shall I tell you, Philip? She responded softly, looking me full in the face. I just remembered a little story. Would you like to hear it? And she began. There was a poor man whose pious parents left him no heritage save an honest name and a good, God-loving heart. Now, although in this he had riches without measure, yet the world accounted him poor. It went well with him at first, but by degrees he tasted trouble. He lost the small fortune he had succeeded in saving by dint of work, and the people pointed to him, saying, Poor wretch! No, no, not poor, he said. God is my portion. But misfortune pursued him. Most of his so-called friends turned their back on him, and those even whom he had trusted most proved faithless. He was deceived, calumniated, misjudged, and people shook their heads, saying, How wretched and miserable you are, to be sure. No, he said, though his voice trembled. Not wretched, but for God is my portion. But the greatest trouble of all now laid him low. He lost his loving wife, and soon after his only child, the suffering man stood alone in a heartless world. Again the people said, shrugging their shoulders, Surely now you will own yourself miserable and wretched, a very butt of trouble. No, he cried, repressing the welling tears. God is yet my portion. And the people turned from him, saying he was singular and strange, and nicknaming him John Comfort in virtue of his peculiarity. But he truly was not wretched, nor indeed forsaken. The last words he was heard to speak on earth were, God in heaven is my portion, and he entered into the joy of his Lord. Did Lily love me? Again and again I ask myself this question. You will think it ought to be of little consequence to me now, but not so. Since all is vanity and nothingness here, the past only remains to be looked to, and even the sure knowledge that her love was mine would be unspeakable comfort. But hell is void of comfort. Shall I ever find an answer to that question? Again and again I have gone over the whole of my intercourse with her trying to understand her part of the relation between us, 
Sometimes I have seemed to arrive at a yes, and then a bitter no wipes out the happy conviction. She knew me from childhood, seeing a brother in me, no doubt, an elder brother even, for the discrepancy of years must have been against me. And she, whose heart from her tenderest youth had been directed to heaven, how should she, how could she, have fastened her affections on such a clod of earth as I was? And she died so young, in the happiest age of ideals. But still, if I call back to mind the tenderness with which she ever surrounded me, the entire devotion that yielded to me with such loving surrender, and made her look to me as to her guide and guardian. And considering that I was the only one of my sex she was brought into close contact with, I say to myself, Surely she loved me. She cannot but have loved me. Not with a feeling like mine, but with her own sweet affection, that love divine, passionless and pure, which so often spoke to my soul in intercourse with her but which never found root in my heart. And I cannot forget that in dying something seemed present with her, resembling the perfect love of holiest woman. It made efforts to flow into words. It hovered on her lips, shining in her eyes, but it found not expression. It had not reached the ripeness which speaks, and it died with her, as an unborn babe with the mother that would have given it life. Is it possible that it was love to me which, even in her last moments, glorified her beauty? Did she love me? Yes or no? Alas, I keep asking, and who shall give me an answer? She never had any secret from me. If indeed she loved me, that was the one secret, hidden surely to herself even. And she took it with her to the other life. As a dream, I remember the days we spent at Bethlehem, a dream, though I hardly closed my eyes. It was with difficulty that we obtained admittance to a small cottage bordering upon the great cloister gardens. There she lay, pale as a lily, beautiful to the last, even in death. And the paler she grew, the deeper glowed the brightness of her wondrous eyes. It was as if the very star of Bethlehem she loved to think of had found a dwelling in her gaze. Nor was she white with that livid pallor which death casts on features in which his lingering touch has wrought havoc. It was rather a transparent whiteness glorifying mortality, and testifying against its victory far more loudly than health's rosiest bloom. Night followed day, and day succeeded night, the time for us flowing unmeasured. I know not how it passed. The cloister bells kept ringing almost continuously, excruciating to my grief. For it seemed to me as though, with heartless voice, they were tolling out the life of my beloved. No one heeded us, but the prior one day sent some consecrated palm branches, which appeared to delight Lily. I fastened them above her couch. As life ebbed away, her unrest increased. She asked to be moved. She was too weak herself, and as a little child I lifted her in my arms, my mother smoothing the couch. Alas, it was the first time since she had quitted childhood that I dared take her into my arms.
and, unconsciously, she clasped my neck to steady my hold. Oh, the touch of love! But how late it came, late because dying. I could not keep back my tears, and they fell on her upturned face. My friend, she said, amid heavenly smiles, my heart yet trembles at the memory. Tears, my friend, and I so happy? I do not suffer in the least, and soon, soon it will all be over. There is but one thing grieving me. I long for the paradise of God, my soul's home, where peace and joy await me. I shall soon be there, without you, Philip, but not for long. We shall be united again where there is no more parting. Her voice was nearly inaudible, and her breathing troubled. As a spirit whisper, those words touched my ear. My friend, she resumed after a while, how sweet it was to call you thus. Yes, Philip, I may tell you now, I loved that name for the best part of my life. Yet there was a depth of meaning in it which I seemed not to fathom entirely, however much I endeavored to be true and loving to you. I often felt you deserved a greater and fuller affection than I was able to give you, and yet those were happy moments when I tried to understand the high meaning of that sweet name. But there seemed something hidden in it, something I could not reach, which, if I had it, would make happiness perfect. I have not found it. I go to God now, and there, Philip, all will be given. We shall be calling each other friend in his presence to all eternity. The measure of happiness will be full. Her physical unease reached such a pitch that lying down became impossible. I took her into my arms, sitting down on the edge of her couch, her head leaning against my heart, and by degrees, quietude returned. I sat holding her, hour merging into hour. God alone knew what I suffered. She moved not. Her eyes were closed, the slow faint breathing only, and the scarcely perceptible throbbing of her heart showed that life had not yet fled. I held her hand in mine, cold, alas, already, and anxiously I watched the sinking pulse. I lived in its beating only, but oh, what hopeless living! The hand grew icy, the pulse becoming slower and slower. It could not last much longer. Suddenly, she raised her eyes, suffused with a light of unearthly kindling, and whispered gently, My friend! As a fleeting breath, the words escaped her lips, but I understood them, with a holy kiss bending to her brow. Again she moved her lips, but no further sound fell on my ear. She had told me once that she loved the habit of the ancient church that joined a blessing to the cross, and involuntarily I made the holy sign to her dying eyes. She understood it, a smile glorifying her features as with a reflection of heaven's peace. Vision faded, the lids closing slowly, a gentle sigh, and she was gone. Lily's dead body rested against my heart. Submission I knew not, the frail maiden had upheld me. She gone, strength and self-possession vanished. For days and weeks I was as one bereft of reason, a prey to devouring grief. But of that 
I speak not. End of letter 20. Thank you for listening. And if you like this, please subscribe and consider liking my Facebook page and joining my group, Jesus Answers Prayer. May God bless your day.